0: It was 1937, and a deputy had just given a rousing speech in praise of Joseph Stalin. And when he finished, his audience stood to its feet, and it began clapping. A man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn explained what happened next. The applause went on, six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. Their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, some people could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, not so eagerly. Nine minutes, ten minutes, insanity to the last man. With make-believe enthusiasm on their faces and looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were going to go on and on applauding "'Till they fell where they stood, till they were carried out of the hall on stretches. "'Then, after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory, "'he assumed a businesslike expression, and he sat down in a seat. "'And oh, a miracle took place. "'To a man, everyone else stopped dead, and they sat down. "'That same night, the paper factory director was arrested.' He was sentenced to 10 years on the pretext of something quite different. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation process, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. It was said that during the Joseph Stalin regime from 1922 to 1952, there were millions of people who were arrested and many were even executed during his regime. In fact, in 1937 and 1938, it was known as the Great Purge, where there were a million political prisoners who were placed in prison or were executed, many of whom were like this gentleman who stopped clapping. Now, the question I have for you is, as we're living in these trying times, this toxic culture that we find ourselves in, Will you stop clapping with what the world is promoting? What the world around us promotes is, are things that God does not approve of, are things that God does not promote. Will we, will we clap with the culture and just go on about our business, keep clapping? Will we try to hide and maybe clap a little so that maybe we won't be noticed, or will we choose to stop clapping and sit down? That's the question I have for you to think about this morning, and that's the question we're going to be looking at in Daniel chapter 3, so please turn to Daniel 3, and we're going to look at a very familiar story, a true story, as it's an account from Scripture, of three men who found themselves in a fiery furnace because they stopped clapping. We're going to look first at the first 15 verses, but keep your Bibles open as we'll journey through the chapter this morning. Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp... The bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. "'Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. "'They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'O king, live forever! "'You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, "'the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music "'shall fall down and worship the golden image. "'And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. "'There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon.'" Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we read through this first portion of Daniel 3, we discover that this King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes an incredible, incredible ultimatum to his people. And he created this massive statue image. The measurements were 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So as I'm reading through Daniel 3, I'm asking myself, why would he create such a magnificent Image of gold. Well, if you were here last week, you probably know why he did this. Last week, we talked about Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we discovered that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he had a dream about an image. And the image had different metals that made up different body parts to this image or statue. The head was a head of gold, the arm or the shoulders and the chest were that of silver. Then you get down to the stomach, and that would be bronze, the metal of bronze. And you get down to the thighs of this statue, and that would be iron. And then it goes down to the feet of the statue, which was mixed of iron and of clay. All of these metals that were on this image, they represented different kingdoms. And and God told Daniel what the king dreamed, and Daniel went and told the king what he dreamed, and he interpreted it for him. And this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had was that he was the head of gold, and his kingdom of Babylon represented this head of gold. And the rest of this image and the different metals, they represented different kingdoms that would follow after him. And in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, he dreamed of a rock that came out of nowhere, and it came and it, and it crashed into this image, and it made the image topple to the ground and, and break into pieces, and then the wind, it blew away all the, ima- all the pieces of the image. And then that rock, it turned into a magnificent mountain that would be forever. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was a dream that one day his kingdom would be no more. It would be taken. He would be defeated by another kingdom. And then that kingdom would be defeated by yet another kingdom. And then that kingdom would have yet another kingdom that would be the main kingdom of the world. But that rock would be the kingdom of God issued in by Jesus Christ... And Jesus would be that forever king that would establish his kingdom that would go on forever and ever and ever. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would come and go because God alone is the one who sets up kingdoms and kings and he tears down kingdoms and kings. God alone does that. When Nebuchadnezzar heard this interpretation from Daniel, he was amazed and he put Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a position of authority. And he was blown away that someone actually told him what he dreamed and was able to interpret it. But as time went on, we get to Daniel 3, and what we see here is Nebuchadnezzar disregarded all of that. In fact, he took it a step further and he made a defiant declaration against what he was told by Daniel. And he wanted to build an image made all of gold. Because after all, that image he dreamed about, he represented The head of gold. And he wanted to establish his kingdom forever. He wanted to disregard what Daniel told him. He wanted to disregard what God had said that one day his kingdom would be no more. And he wanted to say, no, God, my kingdom will last for generations to come. And I'm going to prove it to you by building this golden image. And I'm going to make all the people bow down and worship it. Essentially worshiping me. You know the other thing that I found interesting about this? is where the image was built. It was on the plains of Babylon. And if you're a student of the Bible, you go back to Genesis 11, and what happened in Genesis 11 was the Tower of Babel that was built on the plains of Babylon, the exact same place where Nebuchadnezzar had this image built. Do I think that's out of coincidence? No. Why did the people of the day of the Tower of Babel, why did they build this massive tower in Babel? They built it for two reasons. Number one, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to establish their own kingdom, and it was a defiant declaration against God saying, God, we don't need you. We're going to build our own towers that can reach the heavens because we have the ability and capability to do it. We don't need you, God. That was one reason they built the tower. The second reason they built the tower was they wanted to unify people from all tribes and people groups and nations, and they wanted all those people to come gathered so that they could create their own people group and bring everybody together and say, we're all going to do this together and worship the gods together, and we don't need God, and, and God has told us to scatter throughout the world, but no, we're not going to scatter. We're going to bring us all in so we can all be on the same page. Well, if you think about Nebuchadnezzar, those were the two reasons he built this image. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. He built it for two reasons. He built it because he wanted to establish a name for himself. Say, God, I don't need you. I've got my own kingdom. And he also wanted to gather peoples from all tribes and languages and tongues together. He didn't want them scattered. He wanted them all together so they could be under his authority and his control. You see that in verse 7. Isn't that interesting? So that's why he built this golden image. That's why he was asking everybody to bow down to it, because he wanted to make a name for himself. But then he gives this clear ultimatum to either conform or to die, and we get to verses 8 and 12. Go back to see what happens to these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward, and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice I emphasize you here four different times in verse 12. Why do I do that? Why, why was it done this way? Well, these Chaldeans were Babylonian astrologers. They were the ones who were able to or were supposed to be able to interpret dreams. When you go back to Daniel 2, they could not interpret the king's dream. But Daniel could, because Daniel had a God who could do the impossible. These Chaldeans, these astrologers, believed in Babylonian gods who were false and fake. They were lifeless. They couldn't interpret dreams and and they couldn't tell a king what he dreamed. So, therefore, when Daniel was able to tell the king what he dreamed and interpret it, what did the king do? But he put Daniel and all of his friends in positions of authority, leaving these other astrologers behind. These astrologers and Chaldeans, it was as if they had a vendetta against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now was their opportunity to bring these guys down. They were jealous. They were filled with resentment and envy because, after all, it was the king who put them in a position of authority, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and not the Chaldeans. So the Chaldeans were upset. They were jealous. And now here's an opportunity where they could rat out these three young men for not bowing down. And they go to the king and they said, Oh, king, remember it was you who put these guys in positions of authority. It was you who built this statue. It was you who made this decree. And now the people that you promoted, they're going against you. Huh? Isn't that interesting, king? Well, the king found himself in a pickle. But as I thought about what the Chaldeans did, I thought about how that can relate and translate to our day today. And how you may find yourself in a position where you get promoted and the other person wanted that position, and they're just waiting for you to make just a simple mistake so they can rat you out, so they can get that position. You may be in school, and you may have gotten that, that play, that part in the play that your friend wanted, or you may have gotten that position uh, as a starter on the basketball team, and your friend really wanted it, and they're waiting for you to get injured or to do something foolish so they can step in and take over. It might even be a sibling rivalry, where you're upset that your brother or sister got something that you wanted, and you're just waiting for them to disobey your mom and dad so you can tell mom and dad, hey, brother and sister did this, and they can have that gift taken away from them. This is what was going on with the Chaldeans. They wanted to be in the position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in. Here's an opportunity to rat them out. And it says they maliciously accused them the literal translation means they ate their pieces or they got their teeth into them. That's how vicious these people were. And so when the king hears the news, he's angry. Who would defy me? And he brings these three young men in verse 14. It says, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Nebuchadnezzar, what I thought was interesting here is he gave them an opportunity to answer a question. He says, is it true that you didn't, that, that, you didn't bow down, but they remained silent. They could have lied and said, oh, no, no, sir, that's not true. Oh, no, we, we bowed down, but they just remained silent. And then he, he gives them another opportunity. Okay, well, let's try this again. If you're not going to answer my question, let's try this again. I'm going to set up the music, and then you need to bow. Let's see how they respond in verses 16 through 18. What do they do? They had extraordinary faith and they had all the pressures from the world that you can imagine. Not only was everyone else caving in and clapping and applauding, but the king himself, they see his face, they look into his eyes, and he's looking at them with just anger. And it intensifies. You can read it in the story here it intensifies his anger, and he's just livid with rage. How dare you defy me? I am giving you an order. I'm the king. And what did they do? They remained quiet, and then when they responded, they essentially told the king, "Save the orchestra fee. Don't even play it. Why? Because we will not bow down to your idol." You know what tells me <laughs> what I learned about them? What it, what it told me is that they were very courage, or courageous, men of courage. They would not bow down in the face of a tyrant king. And they said, we will not do it. And why wouldn't they do it? Because they were students of the word of God. They knew what God had revealed to them. They knew the Lord's revealed will for their lives. And they knew as they studied the law of God. That the Ten Commandments had told them. Do not make another God In my image, and do not worship another God after me or before me. These men knew crystal clear because they loved the Lord and they loved His word. They knew what the word said, and they were going to obey what God had said. And they said, What Nebuchadnezzar is asking me to do is going against my convictions and it's going against God's will, His revealed will for me. So this is easy for us. Save the orchestra fee. We're not going to bow down because we have to obey God before we obey man. It's as simple as that. There were three words that really jumped out to me in verse 18, but if not. But if not, be it known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why do I bring this up? Well, these men they knew the revealed will of God, but they didn't know the circumstantial will of God. There's a difference. The revealed will of God tells us, this is what God says, thus saith the Lord. So if God says it, so be it. The circumstantial will of God is, well, I don't know the outcome here. I don't know with the circumstances that I find myself in if he's going to deliver me from this or if I'm going to die. I find myself in this circumstance, and I don't know God's will in this circumstance that I have found myself in. And notice what they said. They said, you know, we believe in a God that if we're thrown into this furnace, that He can save us. He can deliver us from it. But if not, He's still to be glorified. God may choose to have us burn to death and die, but, uh, you know, but that's okay because we'll be in heaven. We got nothing to lose. To live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to gain eternal life. But if not... So how does that translate to you and me in these days today but if not Well we know that the Bible is clear that marriage should be between be between a man and a woman Clear it's all over the scriptures man and woman are to be married not man and man not woman and woman man and woman are to be married that is clear that is God's revealed will for us So as the society is applauding and clapping men to marry men and women to marry women, we have to stop applauding. We have to sit down and say, no, this is God's revealed will, and we don't know what this will do in our circumstances, but by golly, we know what God says. It's as simple as that. Some of you are finding yourself in a position at your work where your employer is asking you or even ordering you to go through a mandatory training on LGBTQ plus rights or on critical race theory? Will you go through that training or will you tell your boss, sir, ma'am, this goes against my convictions. <laughs> I can't sit in this. I'm sorry. I just can't. It goes against my convictions and the revealed will of God. Some of you may find yourselves where you have even adult child who is in a relationship they shouldn't be in with someone of the same sex and they want to get married. Do you go to the wedding or do you say, I can't support this. I love you. I don't know the outcome of where this is going to go in our relationship, but know that I love you. I'm always here for you, but I can't support this wedding. It's the revealed will of God. I don't know the circumstances that will follow, but I know what God says. My convictions are there. Think about all the athletes that refuse not to wear a rainbow on their jerseys or refuse not to kneel when the national anthem is playing. Think of all the pressure that these athletes are getting. yet they know the revealed will of God and they say, I don't know what's going to be the outcome. I might lose my job. I might lose the starting position. I might just get (laughs) just ransacked by all of my friends because of the pressure I'm, I'm feeling. But you know what? The revealed will of God tells me I can't applaud at such lifestyle and behavior. You know, recently we had an elementary student who was at a school and they saw some cuss words written on the stalls and they came and told their mom and dad mom and dad i saw some cuss words mom and dad went to the principal and said this is an intermediate school you got to remove those cuss words they removed it they said we get, we're on it the principals did I Said, thank you you know the mom and dad could have just sat there and said well eh, this is just the way it is <laughs> you know oh, let it go But the mom and dad said no thank you for telling us we're going to go tell the principal to erase this and the principal did These are things that we're dealing with, right, in our culture today. And we got to remember, but if not. But if not. I mean, our jobs might be on the line. Our relationships might be on the line. But you know what? We need to follow God's will and his word. And if it's revealed to us, that's what he calls us to do. I like what Job said in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. No matter the outcome, no matter the consequences, I trust in him. So these young men said, you know what, save the orchestra fee, throw us in the furnace. God can deliver us from it, but if he chooses not to, I'll still love him and worship him. There have been millions of Christians who have been persecuted and killed for their faith. But they had this mentality. There have been millions of others who God has delivered. And we see some examples here in verses 19 through 30 of how God walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of a god of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed. And their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the kings promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. An uncommon God we see here. I like how he described the Lord as no other God could do this. You know, the irony in all this is the first three chapters of Daniel, at the end of the first three chapters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they keep getting promoted before you know it, they're going to be the king. Not really, but they keep getting promoted. Isn't that interesting? Because God lifts them up, and he puts them in these kinds of positions. What I love about this is you just go back to the story, and you can just envision these guards kind of scared as they're approaching this hot furnace that's now heated seven times higher and hotter, and, and then as they get closer, they start falling, and they're dead. I'm wondering what the king's thinking at this point. Well, why aren't these three men dead? The captains, uh, the guard, they're, they're the guardsmen, they're, they're dying here, but why aren't these three? And then these three men are thrown into the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar, after a few moments, he looks in and he's wondering, okay, wait, wait, wait. Why are they still walking around? It looks like they might even be talking. What is going on here? This is a, a fiery furnace. Am I seeing what I'm seeing? Or am I dreaming here? And then he sees this fourth image of another man. And he described that image as an angel, son of the gods. Now, theologians debate whether this was actually Jesus himself or angels. I think the, the reality is we don't have enough to really know one or the other. But what I do know is this. God was with them. Whether it was Jesus, whether it was an angel, we know God was there with them. His presence was there helping these men be freed from being burned to death. And do you notice as, did you notice as Nebuchadnezzar called them out, And had them come out. It said that (laughs) they didn't even smell like smoke. You know that smell after you're around a bonfire for a while? That smoke? I I like the smell. My wife does it because I'll go up and hug my wife after I'm at a bonfire. And she's like, get away from me. That's nasty. That's a hot mess. These men didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't even lose a hair of their head. Their bodies were, or their clothes were untouched. They weren't burnt. Isn't that amazing? Only by the grace of God, it was a true miracle. And only this God could do that. No other God could do this. That's why Nebuchadnezzar, he said what he said. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. No other God who is able to rescue in this way. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by this God, not only who can tell him what he dreamed and interpret the dream, but also save these men from a burning, fiery furnace. You know, the other thing that I took note of here was that these men were actually thrown into the furnace. God put them there in the furnace. But you know what else God did? He met them in the furnace. He was with them in the furnace. Why do I bring that up for you and for me? Because God will put us sometimes in positions that are uncomfortable, that are hard, That are difficult. And we find ourselves wondering why God are you doing this? But here's what I can tell you to be true. That is. God may not deliver you from your trials. And your troubles and your struggles. But he always promises that he'll help you through it. He always promises that he will be there with you. And for you as you're in the fire of life. So some of you may be in that situation where you're experiencing spiritual warfare or you're in the fire. It could be a relationship that's causing a lot of tension. It could be at work. It could be your health. And you're wondering, why am I having to go through this, God? But I want to assure you, not only is there a reason why you're going through it, but God is with you. God is with you. He will never leave you He will never forsake you. Isaiah 43 When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west, I will gather you. Look at that promise that God gives us. He's with us in the fire. I am with you. Just as he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is with us today as we go through hardship. So, as we wrap up this message, I'm going to ask you what kind of church do I want Christ's covenant to be? Well, I'll tell you what I don't want us to be. There are two types of churches I don't want us to be. Gary Hamrick says there are three kinds of churches, and I don't want us to be these two types. A complicit church participates in the culture without standing against it. A complacent church disagrees with the culture, but does not actively oppose it. But a courageous church, it says what needs to be said and does what needs to be done. I want us to be a courageous church. I don't want us to be a complicit church that just says, ah, we're going to participate in the culture, we're going to keep clapping, we're going to keep applauding with what's going on in the world. I don't want us to do that. I don't want us to be a complacent church where we just disagree with what's going on and just kind of sit back and, you know, argue with each other and complain with each other. And that's easy for us to do, right? We can come every Sunday and talk about these things and just complain about the culture and just, woe is me. I want us to be a courageous church that says what needs to be said and does what needs to be done. So as I wrap up here, I'm going to give you three practical things to think about. How does this, what do we do? And I've had a couple of people come up and say, Seth, this is all great, but I need to know what can we do? So here we go. Number one, we need to stay informed with what's going on locally. Not just federally. A lot of us like the federal news, which is great. We need to stay involved federally, stay involved locally. Do you know that just about two weeks ago, there was a school board vote, five to four in favor of protecting women's sports. In other words, five people said women need to play against women. We don't need to have a man turn into a woman to play women's sports. Five people voted in favor of women playing against women. Four voted against it. That's close, right? So we need to thank people like Susan Horn for voting for that. Susan, we want to support you. Thank you. And the other four that voted for that. We need to stay informed with what's going on. Federally, there was recently I heard of a, a congressman who was complaining uh, to some pastors because he said, I'm voting against gay marriage on the house floor, I have not heard from one pastor. I've not heard from Christians. They haven't said they're praying for me. They haven't encouraged me. Not a nothing. We need to write our congressmen and those that are standing up and say, thank you, we're praying for you. How can we pray for you? How can we help you? Some of you may be called to run or support those that are gonna run. Vote is important to vote. That's the least we can do. So stay informed locally And stay informed federally. The second thing we need to do is we need to become a community of support for those that are in the fire. I guarantee almost all of us, if not all of us, know somebody who has found themselves in a position in their job where they are asked to go through a mandatory training of supporting critical race theory, the woke agenda, LGBTQ+, whatever it may be. And if they take a stand with their employer, they may lose their jobs. We've had a few people in this church who've done that and they've lost their jobs. So what do we need to do? We need to be a covenant community that rallies around our people who are standing up and say, we're here. How can we pray for you? Do you even need financial support to get you to your next job? That's what we can do, right? Practically, because not all of us are going to be put in that kind of position, but some of us will be. And the third thing that I would say is very important is we need to continue to educate our children and our grandchildren on some of the issues that are at stake today. What I would encourage you to do, Answers in Genesis, wonderful ministry, look it up. They, they really talk about the issues and they break it down so the kids can understand. I'm reading a book right now called No Reason to Hide by Erwin Lutzer, No Reason to Hide. It's a wonderful book that explains action steps, what we can do. But I'm telling you, it starts with the next generation. We've got to continue to teach them God's word and And how to live in God's ways. And that's why we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. So they can understand doctrine and live for it. You know, this week I started my doctorate program. And some of you are like, are you crazy? My wife encouraged me to do it, okay? She's been telling me the last two years, you need to do this. And I said, okay, I'll do it. It's only two classes a year, so it's doable for senior pastors, okay? Busy like me. But I went to RTS Charlotte this week. And I hadn't been in seminary in 15 years. And I went and I learned from a guy named Dr. Joel Beakey. If you've never heard of him, look him up. Outstanding outstanding. He's written 140 books on Puritanism and Puritans. And I learned all about the Puritans and how for 170 years God blessed this group of people because they loved the Lord and were people who were just in love with the Word of God and they wanted to live it out in their lifestyle. But you know what the Puritans did so well? They not only wanted to learn about the Bible but they wanted to live it out and they wanted it to flow in their inner beings and their, and their affections for Christ That's why the movement lasted 170 years, 170 years because they were a biblical group of people that loved the Bible and they loved Jesus and it just poured out in their lives and they supported each other. But you know the one thing that kept them going was not only the word of God, but it was resting in the promises of God. That was their form of counseling. They would counsel each other, remember the promises of God. So when they were going through hardship, they would say, remember the promises of God. And the promise I want you to remember today, there are hundreds of promises all through the Bible. But the promise I want you to remember today is, I will be with you. When God said, I will be with you, when you pass through the fire, I will be with you. Hold on to that promise, and it will continue to reinvigorate your faith, reignite it, and it will help you to stay faithful when you find yourself in trying times. So again, Christ's covenant, let's be a courageous church and let's say what needs to be said in a loving and winsome way, by the way. We can be funny. We can be warm-hearted people. We don't need to be arrogant and jerks. We need to be loving and winsome. So we need to be uncompromising uncompromising in truth in a winsome way and unwavering in love as we love people who even disagree with us. We love them. We pray for them and we pray for their souls. So Christ's covenant... Let's be a courageous church.